So I want to begin with a question. I like to begin with questions. This gives you a little insight into my head because I want to get your brains to think. I want you to be tracking with me before we get into the sermon because I think many times we're just handed information, but we don't really ask, why is this information important to me? How can I apply this information to my life? Why should I care? So the question I was thinking about this week uh, leading up to this text has been a question I've had uh, asked many times or just discussed in passing. Was anyone under the impression that when you first became a Christian that everything was going to be easy? Anyone ever sold that lie that everything is going to make sense the moment after you say this little prayer or you, you walk an aisle? Okay, now you just pray this prayer and everything's good. Maybe it's just just me, but there's this impression that we can get from Christian television and Christian greeting cards and uh, Christian bookstores that everything is going to get easy. Everything's going to make sense. Jesus is going to handle it all. Jesus, take the wheel, and I just lean back and just coast for the rest of my life. That's terrible advice because then it looks nothing like the Christian life. Now, while Jesus is in control and we can rest in him, The way we think life is supposed to go almost never works out the way that we envision it, right? And once your heart changes and and you begin to follow him, you initially think that, okay, all this is going to make sense and it's all going to be great and I'm going to grow and everything's going to be perfect. And we know that that's not how life is. God doesn't work when things are perfect and when they're easy. We looked at 1 Peter. We spent, I don't know how many weeks, looking at hope through suffering and how God teaches through suffering and how God teaches through refinement. And in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, is our faith dependent on its source or our circumstances? Is our faith dependent on its source or our circumstances? Because do our surroundings determine how strong our faith is? Or does the object of our faith determine how strong our faith is? So that's a question that will either guide you or plague you for your entire Christian life. And the question we're going to look at with Abraham this morning is, can we trust the promises of God in all circumstances when things don't make sense? And also, what does Abraham's faith have to do with our lives? What is Abraham's time in the land of Canaan? What is the details of these two little verses in the New Testament, uh, looking back to someone 3,000 years earlier, have anything to do with us? And I hope that's, that's very clear this morning. And there are so many connections. And that's why I'd like you to pay attention this morning, because this is where a lot of the puzzle pieces fit together. And um, the way most people understand the Bible is it's kind of like the first time when you, I don't know if anyone has ever done a puzzle. You know what the picture is supposed to look like. When you get to the table, you turn all of the pieces face up. And okay, I know what this is and I know what this is, but I don't know how they they fit together. Most people look at the Bible like these puzzle pieces that need to be put together, but they've thrown out the box. No one has ever shown them the box and how to put these pieces together. And so Abraham is one of those pieces that once you figure out where Abraham fits, everything begins to fit in around it. And this is where the book of Hebrews is so important. Because the book of Hebrews takes all of these shadows in the Old Testament. And they show you the reality that they point to. And we know the nature of a shadow, right? A shadow is a representative of the thing that is is casting it. But the shadow is not the thing. And if that is confusing you, think about the Old Testament. Where we get bits and pieces uh, looking forward to what God is doing and it's unveiled in a progressive manner, but we don't get it all at once. But the shadows in the Old Testament are pointing to the real thing. And I've used the other analogy of the acorn in the oak tree. In the little acorn is every piece of DNA and whatever is in in acorns is there to make an oak tree. But it must go through stages and it must be unveiled root by root, shoot by shoot, branch by branch until the oak tree is unveiled. And so the, the seeds of the gospel that we see in Abraham are unfolded fully in this oak tree in Jesus. And so we're going to see those connections this morning. And I hope, I want to see some, some light bulbs going off. I want to see some, some eyeballs opening and some people saying, wait a second, this is why Abraham is important. This is what he was looking forward to. This is what God has been setting up all along. That's where we find ourselves this morning. 
And so I'm going to read our text in uh, Hebrews 11. We're going to read 8 through 10, and then we're going to walk back through 9 and 10, because I want you to see this context of Abraham. So last week, we looked at Abraham's obedience. Hebrews 11, 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise, of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the maker, creator, and builder of all things. In you is all righteousness and all wisdom and all truth. All mercy and justice and peace and comfort is found in you. Lord, forgive us when we look for comfort anywhere else. Forgive us when we try to make a temporary home for ourselves here and lose sight of what you are preparing for us in eternity. Lord, I just pray that this morning, this is an encouragement to all believers. That this is a challenge as we walk through this life and trying to figure out how it looks to be a Christian now and live in the light of eternity. Anyone here who may not know you, whose eyes have not been opened, Lord, that you would use this truth and just the bountiful riches of the gospel to change hearts, those of us who have been stale in our walk with you for years, that you would stir in us a renewed passion and joy for things that bring you glory and for what you're doing in us. And I just pray that you would speak through me, that your spirit would, would work, would guide me, would use the words that are spoken from Scripture, use the words that are preached this morning uh, to work in the lives of your people, to build us up for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we saw Abraham's obedience. and He left his father's land. And uh, this week we see everything come together for Abraham, right? It all makes sense. It's all easy going. It's not really what we see in the text. Abraham's a stranger. He's living in a tent. Doesn't really have a city. Uh, and so Abraham's in this kind of limbo transitional time where he's got these promises of God and he's acting on them. But they haven't really come to fruition yet. So let's kind of see where we are now from last week. We've only gone a couple chapters in Genesis, uh, and not a whole lot has changed. So keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to spend some time in Genesis for the next few minutes. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 13. So Abraham is called in Genesis 12, kind of goes through Canaan. These Canaanites, these pagans are living there, and he keeps moving on. He goes to Egypt after there's a, uh, a famine, and then he's supposed to go back into the promised land. He's still got his nephew Lot with him. Lot's one of those nephews that if you listen to him, he will get you into trouble, because we're going to see Lot's motivations in just a second. So this is one of the uh, great passages in Scripture. My wife and I use this all the time whenever... Uh, we're faced with a decision or anyone asks us, what do we do? Do I go to college here? Do I go here? Do I take this job? Do I live here? Do I, I, I live here? Abraham's response when faced with where to live is exactly how we should respond. Look in Genesis chapter 13, verse 9. So where we find ourselves is Abraham and Lot have been blessed. Remember, uh, Genesis 12 is all about blessing. So they have more people and they have more livestock and they're taking up more and more room and they can't live together anymore. So now they have to figure out who's going to live where. Genesis 13, 9 says, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. This is Abraham speaking to Lot. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. There's a lot of trust there. Abraham doesn't care where he lives. He knows, the, he's not, he knows that the Lord is going to be faithful to him wherever he is. Lot, you can go here, you can go there. It doesn't matter. God is with me. So just a little bit of insight when you're making decisions in your life. It does not matter where you go. It matters who is with you where you go. So we can trust God wherever we are. So we skip down to verse 12. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. Lot, who got to choose, 
settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is intentional here. Lot chose what most people would think to choose. There's cities over there. There's people over there. There's infrastructure. I'm going to be more secure around other people. He didn't take into account the wickedness of the people. Abraham is, in, is off on his own in the wilderness, so to speak, but he's with the Lord. The Lord says to Abraham, verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from this place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. This is an amazing plan that God is unfolding for Abraham. I mean, and this must seem pretty crazy because right now Abraham is probably about 75 years old. He's had no children. And God is saying, I'm going to give this lamb to your offspring. So God makes two promises to Abraham. Two things that he is promising to Abraham and his children forever. It's a land, a place to have possession forever, and a people. Great nations, many nations that will go on forever. And so this theme will continue throughout scripture. And these two themes are going to go through our entire sermon. That of land and seed. That of land and offspring. That of land and heirs. So now that we have that. So this is kind of where we find ourselves. So he went to live according to the promises of God. Here's the circumstances that he went to live. Now we're going to go back into into Hebrews. We're not done in Genesis either, so keep your uh, finger there. But so Hebrews 11.9 begins with the words that every one of our texts is going to begin with. By faith. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. So by faith he went to live in the land. He went to live trusting in God by faith. Not like Lot, trusting in infrastructure and trusting in, in people and wanting to associate himself in the, the, the comfort of what the city has to offer. But his faith was in the God of the land, the, the promises that God give, gave him. Because where he lived and how he lived was not divorced from his faith. And so this is the first of many questions I want to ask us during this sermon is how many times have the decisions of our lives become divorced from our faith? How many times do we make decisions only on practical, surface-level uh, uh, observations? I mean, Abraham had nothing to go off of. We, we looked at this last week. Abraham didn't have a, a, a deed. I mean, God didn't, didn't hand him a plot of, plot of land and give him someone to to guard it and work it. It was by faith he moved. How many decisions in our lives is, is our faith the last thing we consider? Something as simple as moving, accepting a job, how to treat people, how to walk through our daily lives. Where does faith come into play? Is our faith in God, is our trust in God the first thing we consider or the last thing? Do we trust God's promises or do we have to have evidence before we can trust God's promises? Because the reason why Abraham is such an example of faith is he went on no evidence on the promises of God that I will provide for you and your children forever. And even though Abraham didn't know where he was going, he knew the promises of God because he knew the character of God and he could go faithfully and confidently. And he went as in a foreign land. So this uh, doesn't really translate into our culture. Uh, we have immigrants coming and going. It's pretty easy to move from one country to another. But this is a lot more like the Wild West. This is going out into the middle of nowhere. These pagan nations who are, are basically raiding bandits who can, who can come in at, at any point in time. You have no protection. You have no security. There is no rule of law. It's just you and your family. 
At any point, the Hittites or the uh, Canaanites or the Perizzites or any of these tribes can come in and just ravage your settlement in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day. And Abraham is not settling in the comfort of other people. He's by himself with the Lord. And so he's in this foreign land. And there are a lot of pressures when you come in a foreign land as well. I mean, it can be a good thing or a bad thing to adopt the cultures of foreigners. If you move to another country, if you move to another area, you want to learn the language. You want to learn uh, the, the words that, 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 that people use. You want to learn some of the uh, local customs so you know how to interact. You want to learn what the local food is. You want to enjoy what the people enjoy to an extent. But there's also a great temptation to look like the people of the land. Because the Canaanites did not worship the one and true God. They worshiped many gods. And it would be easy being in the land of the Canaanites to worship the gods of their own making, to worship idols. Like we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, they worshiped sex. And all of the, the priorities and wickedness that the world and these, these other nations that are not of God can worship. And so there's an additional layer of temptation that we don't really think about. Because Abraham is not just here for five days, for five months. So see, in a moment, he's here for 25 years, even before Isaac. And he's still there, intense, his entire life, surrounded by pagans, only with the promise of God. That all of these people, as are going to see in Genesis 15, I'm going to hand over to you. And the land will be yours and, and of your offspring. So he's living there. He's living as... Um, a foreigner living in tents. So when we see that he's, he's living in, in, in tents, it's something we can just gloss over. Okay, he's living in tents. If you live in a, a tent, how permanent is a tent? It's not. Uh, the, the whole nature of a tent is you set it up in a day and you can tear it down in, in, in less than that. And you can move on as you need to move on. So Abraham is essentially a nomad. He didn't build a city. He didn't build a home. He's living in tents. If you're like me, that sounds miserable. I don't know if I could live in a tent for a day, let alone years and years and years. Um, I'm not a camper. If you are, good for you. Um, but, you know, I, uh, and, um, I had a bunch of tent jokes. I don't know if I want to give them or not. Okay, so I'll, I'll just give one. I, I have this fascination with, like, dad jokes lately, those, like, really corny play-on-word jokes. Um, why can't you uh, run through a campsite? You can only ran because it's past tense. <laughs> I got a few more. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Some of you guys are going to get that on the way home and just laugh in, in the car. <laughs> so living in, in uh, tents, it, it, it doesn't give you any... That's the point. It's corny. Uh, so living in tents is, is not anything permanent. You're, you're, you're not looking to be there for the rest of your life. This is, okay, I'm going to be in this tent... Until I can build something permanent. And, but he doesn't. But Abraham sees the value of living in tents with the Lord rather than living in cities with the evil, wicked Sodomites. So I have another question for you. Even though we have homes and we're, we're Americans, we, 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 we love to have our our house and our lawn and our picket fence and all the other things that, that, that make us feel at home. But do you ever struggle with feeling at home? Do you ever struggle with feeling really settled? That the more you try to settle in, the more out of place you feel in this world. And we talk about this a lot, that the more and more you grow in Christ, the less and less this feels like your home. The, less and, the, the more and more you feel like a foreigner. In a foreign land. Because the cultures are contrary to yours. The wisdom is contrary to yours. The world looks less and less like scripture. And more and more like the Canaanites. So if there's that unsettled feeling of not really feeling at home here. There's a reason for that. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Because when we feel unsettled. When we feel out of place. We're left to trust God, even if we're surrounded by the idolatrous Canaanites. 
But we have to be careful because many times we are far too eager, eager to settle down and settle like Lot did. Trusting in the cities of, God, cities of man rather than the provision of God. All right, so we continue here in our passage. And I'm going to look at each one of these, these terms in verse 9 because they're all important. When you're only going to discuss Abraham for one or two verses, you're going to make every word count. And every one of these does. So by faith, he went uh, to live in the land of, uh, excuse me, of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Well, wait a second. We just skipped forward a long time because if you, if you know Genesis, we've got to go through a lot of chapters before Isaac comes and even more chapters before Jacob comes. So hold on a second. The writer of Hebrews kind of jumps forward pretty, pretty quickly here. He just throws it in. And so what are we to learn about him living in this land and him living with Isaac and Jacob? Because remember a moment ago, how long did I say that he, he lived in the promised land before Isaac was, was born? Who's listening? 25 years. So if he's living in the promised land for 25 years, something must have happened between going to live there in tents and boom, Isaac pops on the scene. God is still teaching him. God is still working in him. By faith, he received those promises in Genesis 12. In case he forgot, God tells him again in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Because I would tend to get worried. I tend to get scared if months and years went by and these promises of offspring never came in decades. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. And this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. And if you don't understand the cultures of the time, if you don't understand ancient Near Eastern traditions, then you won't really understand Genesis 15. But it is so vital to understanding the rest of Scripture. So where we find ourselves in Genesis um, chapter 15 is that Sodom and Gomorrah is uh, brought down to the ground. Lot is rescued. Abraham meets Melchizedek. Although Hebrews has a lot to say about Melchizedek, we're not touching that this morning. And I want to cover most of chapter 15 because this is very important. There's a lot of important details here that that will help us set up the rest of this. So Genesis chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The most comforting words you can hear is fear not, coming from the Lord, because I am your shield. I will protect you against all of these other nations. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a household servant. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member, of, a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, I want to stop here. Because verse 6, Abraham's faith it was accounted to him as righteousness. It means everything for us. This is what separates us from every religion on the planet. This is what makes Christianity so unique and so beautiful. Because it is the faith. Trusting in God that is righteousness before God. And nothing else. And this is why Abraham is our example of faith. Can you imagine this? You're still living in the wilderness. You have no children, and I'm sure you're trying. You have nothing else to do in the wilderness. And you have nothing to show for it. And you're kind of pleading with God, like, God, can you, are, are you serious? I've heard you say this before, but I don't have any offspring. God is saying, trust me. God is building the faith in Abraham. And it was counted to him as righteousness. If you want to memorize one verse in the Old Testament and apply it to your life and teach it to one another, it is that. So we go on. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you a land to possess. And he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? If you think you're the only one who pleads and argues with God, you're not. Abraham, this great man of faith, is still questioning God. So he said to him, God, bring me a heifer, 
three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's like a, like a bad Christmas song or something, right? And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each one over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, a lot of you are lost. Why are there these random animals? Why are they being cut in half? There's a lot of blood. This, okay, so again, this is if you don't understand ancient Near Eastern culture, you will be completely lost with this. But this is a, a, a covenant ceremony. So now if we want to make an agreement, we'll draw up a contract. We'll get way too many lawyers. We'll go before a judge. People will, will uh, swear. That there's all these different things that we will do. In that culture, the most extreme thing you could think of to uh, bond your word to something was blood. And so these animals had to be killed in order to cement this in blood. Because what that, what that signified is if you broke this contract, your blood would be as the animal's. And so this was unto the death. Nothing could sever this covenant. And, and Paul gets into this more in, in Galatians. Uh, and this, there's another la- layer to this as well. This was typically initiated by a stronger king over a weaker king. So this stronger king uh, who has a greater people and a greater army will reach out to this, this smaller country and reach out to their king and say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an agreement with you. You pay me so much in protection and I won't kill you. And so they would go through this covenant ceremony and they would cut these animals uh, in, in half. They would separate them and they would both walk through them, both saying that, that if this covenant is uh, gone against, then I, if, if it's me, my blood will be as the animals. And so this is something that, that, that they would have known. It would, have be, it would be as common as a lease contract or a mortgage is in our culture. It's strange to us, but this is how business was done. And so it's interesting that God uses the cultures of the day to speak to his people. So I, I want to I skip down to verse 17. So when the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. Now that's amazing in and of itself. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates. And he lists all the peoples who are in the land. So something very interesting about that. Remember, just a moment ago, I said, if two kings make a covenant with one another, they both walk through. What passed through these animals? A smoking pot and a flaming torch. The presence of God walked through these animals. So that means... That God is keeping the covenant all by himself. Abraham did not need to walk through it. God was saying that I'm going to fulfill the role of the stronger king and the weaker king. I'm going to fulfill all of these things. You stand over there because this is my covenant I'm making in front of you with myself. Just how amazing the way God works with us is. So when we're tempted to think that it's our salvation and our redemption and our our terms, from the very beginning, God said, I am doing this. You stand over there. This is my work. I will accomplish it. And so that is so important to everything else in the New Testament. And so Abraham is watching this. And when the writer of Hebrews inserts Isaac and Jacob he's showing that this covenant is being fulfilled in the children. And they're living in this land, although they're not permanently inhabiting it yet. This is still unfulfilled. This is still looking forward. All right, so back in Hebrews, hopefully everyone tracking with me? Is all making sense? If you have questions, ask me afterward. I love this stuff. I could talk all day. And my wife will attest to that. Um, So living in tents with Isaac and Jacob... Heirs with him of the same promise. All right, same promise. Heirs of the same promise. They inherited what Abraham inherited. inherited. Who are the promises to? Those who trust in God and those who are faithful. Everyone who has faith, like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Joseph, like Moses, like Joshua, are heirs according with Abraham to that promise. Abraham is the father of the faithful, the heirs along with him. If you trust in God like Abraham did, 
You will receive what Abraham looked forward to. We're going to unfold this a little bit more. So many times when we sing songs as, as kids, we, we don't realize the significance of them. Anyone remember the Father Abraham song? Father Abraham had many sons. I am I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. One of those silly songs that you sing as a kid, it sticks in your mind, you can never forget. But there's so much theological truth there. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Actual biological sons? No. We know how that turned out. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I mean, this is something that Paul develops quite a bit. Because the sons of Abraham are the sons by what? By faith. And so we can praise the Lord because the same God who appeared to Abraham, the same God who brought him out of paganism, the same God who makes this covenant with him and walks through it himself, is the same God who makes us sons and daughters through faith. And we can praise the Lord in who we are in him. But why are we his sons? All right, don't just take my word for it. Now we're going to now we're going to do a little studying. This is where like the theology nerd comes out. So uh, this is going to be helpful. Trust me. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter four. This is good stuff. I want to hear pages vigorously turning. We got to we got to look at a couple more too. one more after this. Romans chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 11. All right, so he's going to talk about circumcision here, which we are not. Remember I said he, uh, God gives those promises three times to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision, But this is, this is important. Just throw out the word circumcision because Paul is making a point here in Romans. But the application applies to us. So Romans chapter 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the Jews were still caught up in circumcision. Circumcision had nothing to do with faith. The covenant by faith was before circumcision. The purpose, here we go, this is for us, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that the righteous would be counted, righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is an inward righteousness, a righteousness by faith, a righteousness through belief, not circumcision, which is solely external. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, we use circumcision over and over and over again. But the point here is that it is faith that set Abraham apart, not circumcision. Because remember last week we were looking to, at the Jews who were looking at Abraham as their father biologically. We are circumcised, so we are righteous. Paul's saying, no, righteousness is not through circumcision. It's not through physical net acts. It's not through outward ceremonies. It's those who walk the way Abraham did, who believe the way Abraham did. Skip down to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace... And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gave life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Going back to Hebrews 1. In hope he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Yeah, thanks. That's great encouragement, right? That he's looking forward to an offspring and his body's as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. 
This is so important. Do not miss this. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see how all this comes together. What was happening to Abraham was not just for him. He was the example for us that we would trust in Christ. The one who God raised from the dead, if our faith is in him, we are secure for our justification, for us being declared righteous before God. And when Abraham trusted God in faith, he was trusting in Christ. He was trusting in the risen Savior. This changes everything. This is the gospel distilled into its technical details. How are we saved? By faith. What is the means of our salvation? Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. What is the purpose of it? Our justification before God. What is the result of it? Being children of the living God. Heirs according to the promises of Abraham. This is massive. We're going to take this one step further in Galatians 3, and I'm going to try to move quickly here. Galatians 3, starting verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And how does Paul tie together? And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There was a light bulb that went off back there. Thank you. At least there's one. Hopefully there's a lot more. Do you see what God is doing here? God is setting up in Abraham this prototype of faith. That in Christ is fully realized. Because without the promises to Abraham, without the fulfillment in Christ, if you're not a Jew, you're out of luck. But this is not an inheritance through your biology. It's an inheritance through your Faith guided by a proper theology, a proper understanding of who God is and what he's doing. All right, so let's, let's move on. Now, so we see that what, they, they are two promises. We'll go back to those. Land and seed, land and offspring. So now we see the offspring, Isaac and Jacob, fulfilled in Christ. Now let's look at the land, verse 10 in Hebrews. Fingers tired yet? Good. So Hebrews 11, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city uh, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So remember where Abraham is. He's living in tents. He has no city. He didn't turn to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's trusting in God, living as a nomad. And Abraham, in his faith, not knowing exactly what God was going to do, the writer of Hebrews told us that he was looking forward to what God was going to do. He's looking forward to a city. Now, this is one of my most uh, favorite doctrines to talk about and this blew my mind and i'm going to see a few eyeballs pop out of your heads in just a second that the the end result of the christian life is not heaven Uh uh-oh dun 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 so heaven is where god's throne is where god resides and where the judgment seat is for now but one is coming back to judge when he does he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth What he had promised his people is a new Jerusalem, a city, a city where there's no temple, but Christ himself is the temple. And the city is made up of living stones. Think about that. And so what God is doing is he's building a a people who are not tied to cities here, but who are tied to an eternal city. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the church, wrote a brilliant book called City of God. Uh, It's massive. It's brilliant. Uh, If you want to read it, set aside a couple years. Um, But what he does that is so profound is he traces this theme of the city of God and the city of man throughout all of, of culture. He applies it to a lot of things in his day. But much of the wisdom in that book is timeless. And I want to share a couple of those, those quotes with you. Because many times we get discouraged because we miss the, the perspective that Augustine had. Augustine had this perspective that the city of God 
is what the culmination of all things is. And the city of man is just a distraction here. And it will enslave us. So the first quote kind of gets to that. The whole of history since the ascension of Jesus into heaven is concerned with one work only. The building and perfecting of the city of God. All right, and if you're still missing um, these, these, these points, let me try to connect them. So when Jesus came, he said that um, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So Jesus coming is the ushering in of the kingdom of God, the beginning of the building of this city. Now, the Jews were looking toward a temple, and the temple was, was to give sacrifices. Christ was the last sacrifice. The temple now, our bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit, when the new Jerusalem comes in Revelation 21, we're going to read this a little bit later, that Jesus is the temple himself. There is no more need for sacrifices. And that, that building of the city, it's a, it, it is a city, and it will be built with stones. We just finished First Peter. Who did Peter say the, the, the stones were? Us. Living stones being built on the cornerstone of Christ. A place that will be fitting for the dwelling of God. Every time a new believer comes to faith, another stone is added to the city. When all of the number of all of the saints throughout all of history is added to the city, then it will be complete and Christ will come again. Any more light bulbs out there? Let's look to the next one. What is the, what is the reward of this life? How can we look for re- reward uh, when we see the city of God versus the city of man? The reward of virtue will be God himself who gave the virtue together with the promise of himself. The best and greatest of all possible promises. Amen. The promises of God are fulfilled in God, are fulfilled in Christ. All of those promises are in Christ. The same God who walked through those covenant animals by himself is fulfilling the promises by himself. The rewards of faithfulness, virtue, morality, good deeds... The inheritance of God. So what about while we live here on this earth? Look at this, this next quote. For the good make use of this world in order to enjoy God. Whereas the evil want to make use of God in order to enjoy this world. Is that true or what? Let's look at the next one. This, this one is helpful as well. He that becomes a protector of sin shall surely become its prisoner. What does it mean to have a kingdom of of God, a city of God perspective? You realize that Jesus said, sin has no place in my kingdom. So if all those who practice sin are going to be left outside, you're not going to want to protect it in your own life and in the lives of others. And this this last quote uh, kind of sums it up. Oh, no, I've got two more. They're all good. I had to trim them down. I had way more than this. Uh, But it must not be supposed that folly is as powerful as truth. Just because it can, if it likes, shout louder and longer than truth. In our culture, does folly shout louder than truth? Amen. This is the last one I was talking about. The, The earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. That is the difference between the city of God and the city of man. Abraham was glorying in a city of God. Lot was looking for glory in the cities of man. Paul calls this heavenly city, mother city. Just a little piece of trivia for you. The word metropolis, two Greek words, meter and polis, mother city. Metropolis means mother city. Paul calls the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, our mother city. The birthplace of us all, our protector, where we belong. Such a great picture. That's in Galatians 4.26 if you want to look at that later. The writer of Hebrews wants us to get this new Jerusalem picture so much. Uh, turn one more page over for me in um, Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 22 through 24. In Hebrews, up until this point, he's talking about how Jesus fulfills everything. How Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is better than the, the, the priests. And these, he's talking to uh, readers who are, who are discouraged from the trials of life and from the discipline of the Lord. But what does he tell them as an encouragement? Verse 22 of chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable angels in festal gatherings. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Going full circle back to Abel, back to the very beginning, how Abel speaks. All in Christ, the better covenant in Christ, looking forward to the new Jerusalem when his glory is on full display forever and ever. One more page, Hebrew 13, chapter, or excuse me, Hebrew, Hebrews 13, verse 14. Look at this. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Remember that. As we live on this earth, we have no lasting inheritance here. Nothing here will continue. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But our inheritance is in the city that is to come. Before we wrap this up, I have a question for you. Do you feel weary, discouraged, trying to find peace in the things of this land? Does it ever feel like you're not at home? Probably because you're not. And C.S. Lewis got that. I got this. There's a great quote from Mere Christianity, another book that you may, may want to read. Uh, but look at, this, look at this, this lengthy quote here. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Amen. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. So as we conclude this morning, I just want to ask you a couple questions. We're just living our lives for a temporary home. We're just living for what this world has to offer. We're just living to be like the Canaanites. Or we live with our eyes fixed on our real home. Because by faith, we're like Abraham. Sojourners, pilgrims, just passing through for a time. By faith, we're part of Abraham's promised offspring, promised seeds, with the same promised inheritance. Because all of Scripture looks for a land and a people who will glorify God forever. That's what God started with in the garden. That's what Adam and Eve lost. Abraham is the connection between what Adam and Eve lost. The land and the people that were tied to God in the garden who got severed, God provided a way for in Abraham. And in Christ, by faith, we receive the fullness of what Abraham longed for. Let's pray. Lord, I can't even scratch the surface on the majesty of your plan for our salvation. I have no words that can even begin to describe how amazing this is. We will spend the rest of our lives just trying to wrap our heads around this. But Lord, I just pray that this is an encouragement to us this morning. No matter what happens in this world, it is not our final home. But like C.S. Lewis says, we, we don't forget the blessings that we have here. We rejoice in them. We rejoice in everything that, you, that you've given us. We fix our eyes on that city and directing others to it as well. And our Savior, who by faith gives us entrance into that city. Lord, this is amazing. This is the gospel that has power for salvation. I pray that it is always on our lips and always on our hearts. Amen. So I'm going to do something a little different. I normally just pray and walk off here.
But we're, we're going to sing a song in response. And this song is based on Revelation 21. So we're going to look at one more scripture, and then we're going to sing this text. It's a great way to close. So Revelation 21, uh, I want you to, if you have your Bibles, all the way to the back, starting in verse 1. What was Abraham looking forward to? What did Isaiah prophesy about? What did Jesus say was coming into this world at the beginning of his ministry? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Skip down to verse 22. We're going to finish with this. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does, who does what is test, detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Land and seed fulfilled in Christ, the new Jerusalem.